Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osman. Our page 50. So our dot begins with really a series of taka note that started on the previous dot. And so I really just want to start with what's what about the city of Usha. It's a city that's in the western part of the Galil. Um, and it's a very important uh, Tanaitic city because it basically was, as we know, and we've discussed before, uh, that the uh, Bezdin, the Sanhedrin, was moved out of Yerushalayim after the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash, second Beit HaMikdash. It was moved to Yavna. Um, but uh, during the Hadrianic uh, persecutions, uh, the Sanhedrin had to be moved around. And so it went to Usha, and then from Usha went back to Yavna. And then another time it went again, a second time from Yavna uh, to Usha. Um, and it is, uh, we think that it actually ended up being uh, in Usha uh, for a, a period of time until then it went to Shifaran. Um, the other piece of it is that there were some important Talmidim of Rabbi Akiva who lived there, including Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, Rabbi Yehuda Bar Eli, uh, whose father is going to be mentioned with one of the Takanot that we talk about today. Uh, so it's interesting that he's sort of mentioning his father in connection to the Takanot of Usha. Rabbi Yossi and also Rabbi Meir. Um, and there's this famous story of Rabbi Yehuda ben Baba, who needed to ordain or to give smicha to a This is a very famous Gemara uh, that appears in Sanhedrin and part of it in Avodah Zarah. Um, and part of the Hadrianic persecution so that you weren't allowed to give smicha in the city. So what he did was, is he... Uh, gave smicha to students in between the cities of Usha and Shifaram, um, and he eventually gets put to death uh, later on because of doing that. Uh, but that's why it's important. And so this series of takanot, this idea that there was a series of takanot, uh, it, we see this in a few other uh, gemaras as well. It's in the gemara in Moed Katan and also in Babakama uh, and in Shabbat. So it's something that gets referred to uh, a few times within the Gemara itself. So I'm just going to read sort of this first one because I think it, uh, A, it's sort of an interesting concept and B, it combines some of the history that we talked about here. I'm a Rabbi Eli, Busha Hitzkino. So again, as we mentioned before, Rabbi Hudabar Eli was actually born there. His father obviously must have lived there as well. Rabbi Hudabar Eli lived there. Um, and uh, it's interesting to see sort of this Takana uh, be mentioned uh, in connection to Rabbi Eli, specifically with Usha. I instituted the following. So somebody who's giving his money for tzedakah should not give more than a fifth of his um, of his money. Actually, there was a price that taught similarly. So again, same thing in this price so that you shouldn't give more uh, than a fifth because you yourself then may need help from people. Right, there was a story they used to tell to illustrate this point where somebody wanted to give more than fifth. His friend didn't let him. Umanu, okay, and who was his friend? Rabbi Yeshavad. It was Rabbi Yeshavad. Vaimri la. Right. And some say what? That it was Rabbi Yeshevab, 
right? He was the one who wanted to give too much. And who was the one who uh, who prevented him uh, from giving so much was actually his friend, Rabbi Akiva. So we have here like an interesting concept, which is that somebody actually could give uh, too many, too much tzedakah, basically. Um, and, uh, you know, and that that is really uh, not so nice. Now, this Rabbi Yeshavev, uh, doesn't appear in too many places. In fact, when I looked around about him, I found this, uh, he also appears, uh, there's a Gemara in, in Erchen, uh, which talks about, I think, something very similar. Again, the same halacha about tzedakah. Um, also um, uh, in Nazir, um, as well, where he tries to examine these corpses. Um, uh, he finds a corpse, and he wanted to say that there were three corpses in the area to say that it was a graveyard, and Rabbi Akiva has this exchange with him where he tells him that he shouldn't. Uh, he doesn't need to do this. So it's interesting that, again, we also see in this Gemara, him and Rabbi Akiva together. Um, and in Yerushalmi uh, in Pea. So not a very, very well-known Tana, but he is a Tana. So just to keep that in mind as well. Um, and then it goes on to say, how do they know this halacha? Amar Rav Nachman, Bitame Rav Acha Bar Yaakov, right? So, uh, you know, Rav Nachman said, and some say Rav Bar Yaakov, who said, right, my crowd, what pasuk do we learn this from? They quote a pasuk from Bereshit, which is so interesting. Chapter 28, verse 22, with Yaakov, right? Where it says, and all, and all of that that you shall give me, I will surely give you a tenth. But because it has, it uses aser aserenu, right? It has the word tenth twice. It means actually two tenths, which is equal to a fifth. So the Gemara says, but the latter tenth is not similar to the first tenth, right? Because what it means is that the second one tenth is what remains after the first tenth is removed. So really it's not two tenths doesn't really equal one fifth of the original total. Amaravashi says the verse you know, uh, the verse could have said, I'll give one tenth, right? Aser, aser, right? And instead it said, asrenu. So it means that the second one tenth is equal to the first, uh, is equal to the first uh, one tenth. Um, so, you know, we basically have a very, very interesting uh, piece of Gemara here. You know, a lot to learn about with Usha. Uh, the fact that uh, Rabbi Yehuda Barilai, who's born in Usha, quotes his father, who obviously lived in Usha, and is associated with one of uh, that, you know, the Takanas that were made in Usha itself. We learned here about a Tana that we didn't know much about um, at all. And also this whole discussion, just ph philosophically, uh, the idea that one could actually give too much tzedakah. But it's interesting, the Gemara starts off by saying one could give too much tzedakah, but then they bring sort of a proof to show like, no, but you could give one, you know, uh, you know, how to actually give up to one fifth. So it does actually seem like giving up to a fifth, even though I think we often say it's a tenth, is ideal. Um, but they do bring a proof, you know, from the text itself to say one fifth seems to be the ideal or at least the most that you can give for tzedakah itself. I think maybe this goes back to the other day's conversation about, you know, what's an obligation and what's a mitzvah and what's what are the parameters to these activities that are on the one hand, obligatory, and then, but not obligatory to go too far, right? Like the idea that something could be prescribed 
at the amount that is ideal and that too little is not enough. Well, you haven't done what you're supposed to do. And too much isn't automatically better. I think sometimes that's like a little bit hard to wrap your head around because we're kind of geared to think that more is better or sometimes the opposite, right? Sometimes less is better. But in this case, it's we're looking for a very real balance unless you happen to be amongst the population that can really do this, in which case, by all means, give them more. Um, I'm going to continue. I'm going to, there's two pieces, two small pieces that I want to talk about on this stuff. The first is on Ahmed Aleph, still in Usha. I think Usha must have been a very interesting place. Interesting people, interesting place. Amor of Yitzchak, Usha hitkinu adam mitgalgel So, of course, I want to talk about the educator piece here, right? That um, Rav Yitzchak said that in Usha they made a decree that a person when it comes to educating his son because a person has an obligation and there again like is it an obligation is a mitzvah how does it kick in to, uh, to educate his son but what happens if the kid doesn't want to learn right and so this statement is until the kid is 12 years old he should be treated gently he should treat him Gently, like, let it wash over, whatever. Um, but once the kid is 12, again, recognizing that bar mitzvah is at 13, um, go down to him to the essence of his life, meaning harass him with every within an inch of his life. Make sure that you have forced him to study and that he is truly studying. So this is an interesting question in terms of, you know, both educator you know, the domain of educators and the domain of parents nowadays, how much are you supposed to, you know, be gentle with your children or your students in terms of getting them to learn and to appreciate what you're teaching them and so on and what you require of them at home, let's say. And how much are you going to say like, no, this is the red line. You must do this. And we're going to fight it too. Every, to, again, you're ready. Then the Gemara, of course, says, Eni, but is that so? Meaning, was this really the case? So what happens? Didn't Rav say to Rav Shmuel Barshelat, who Rav Shmuel Barshelat taught the little kids, and didn't Rav tell him that when you're talking about children who are younger than six, don't even take them to teach them if they're younger than six. But from the time they're six, then you should ex- accept them to be taught and safilic Torah. Stuff them like an ox. Meaning, <laughs> you might need to force feed the child with Torah, with information, with, with Torah and mitzvah, whatever that's going to be. The implication being, aren't you starting that, you know, every inch of his life stage that's supposed to kick in only once the child is 12, this seems to suggest that he should be starting already at the age of six. So the Gemara says, in, where it says it's not a contradiction, meaning, yes, do stuff the six years old and plus kid, stuff him like an ox, teach him, teach him intensively, give him all the learning and the knowledge that you can teach. Mihu, however, I know you're really but don't bother him about it. Don't fight with him about it. Don't harass him in every aspect of his life to get him to focus on his studies until he's already 12. Meaning from 6 to 12, you're stuffing him with information, yes. You're stuffing him with Torah, yes. But you're not going to fight with him to get him to, to participate. 
So maybe the, another possibility, right, you could say is that the, the division between this, the 6 to 12 and 12 and on, is really about the material itself. Meaning, are we talking about the kids who are six years old? Then we're talking about Mikra, meaning Tanakh, meaning the Bible. As opposed to from 12 on, we're talking about, instead of Mikra, we're going to talk about Halakha or Mishnah, right? It's a different kind of learning. It's a different approach to the material itself. The material is very different in the way it presents what it has to say, right? So then you could say, well, okay, that's an, that's an easy enough division, right, to say, you have a difference of focus from 6 to 12 or 6 to 11 and from 12 on. And then the Amar Abai, this is as Abai said, and we love Abai stories, right? Amar Ali aim bar sheet lemikra bar eser lemishna bar tleser letanita me'et le'et ubetinoket batresar. So Abai says, this is what my mother, now we know that Abai was raised by a non-biological mother, meaning he talks about her on occasion, we've talked about her on occasion, right? So when he's, he, I, I, one of the reasons I think the Abaya stories are great is because often there's detail that we wouldn't necessarily have elsewhere. And in this case, he's citing halacha in the name of his mother who told him, right, that what's the basic plan? The basic plan is that six-year-olds are ready to learn mikra, meaning Tanakh, right, Bible, and 10-year-olds can learn Mishnah, and a 13-year-old is able to fast for 24 hours like an adult. and But for a girl, she can start observing the fast when she's 12 years old, as opposed to waiting for 13 years. And I feel like, well, yes, we know that because we know bar bat mitzvah at 12 and 13, respectively, but but it's not a given in this statement, right? He doesn't say from bar mitzvah on, from bat mitzvah on fast. It's specifically from 13, the boy can fast. Oh, and by the way, that means from 12, the girl can fast. And I mean, the Gemara goes on, but what I find to be so fascinating here, besides the fact that he's citing the halacha in the name of his mother or his adoptive mother, is exactly what this halacha says, right? It's giving us a hierarchy of maturity, both on the intellectual plane in terms of what they can learn and on the physical plane in terms of how can they sustain a fast. And I think that always, I don't know, I can't say always, but certainly in my day, how old you were when you began to fast, Triumph Kipper, was a badge of honor. I imagine that is still the case. Although I think we know enough these days about psychology and food and eating disorders and so on to not have that race be a thing. But I think that amongst the kids who are, you know, creeping up on that age of fasting, I think it just might be. Um, okay. The Gemara goes on. Abai talks further about, uh, you know, another remedy, uh, another thing that his mother cites about six years old, six year olds who are. Somebody who's stung by a scorpion, right? And then Rav Katina goes on to talk about somebody who's six years old. So we have a whole cluster here of statements about six-year-olds, which I think is also really interesting because there's very little discussion in the ancient world, not only in the Gemara, about children being children. Meaning you talk about babies or Tino quote, fine. But the idea of a childhood or things that are different, let's say at the age of six, as compared to, you know... As appears to the little, the as appears to being small adults, right? Um, and so I think that the fact that the Gemara is going to focus on that is truly different. And it talks here about friends and kids, right? Which is exactly as you would hope it would be. But what I want to do, I'm racing for it in the interest of time. I want to jump to Ahmed Bet. On Ahmed Bet, we have also it's a small piece, and it's again about you know, well, kids, right? And but in this case, we're talking about orphan kids. Amar Rabbi Chia Bar Yosef, Rav Zan Michite de Aliyah, 
So Rav Chibar Yosef says that Rav would take care to provide for our orphan girls um, with wheat. And then it says, according to this aliyah, which is not defined really, it's the aliyah of if the if the fathers didn't want to provide for them, meaning Rav would make sure to take care of it according to the aliyah. So the question is, what does it mean according to the aliyah? This thing, this um, this term is it doesn't mean aliyah like making aliyah, right? Like it seems to be a specific um a specific kind of food or a specific category of food. And then the question is, you know, what's going on? Well, like, what do we understand from this? Ibailahu, right? What's we're they're gonna ask the before all of them, right? It's gonna be a dilemma. Parnasahavya umai aliyah meulya de av. So why why is Rav doing this, right? What is the sustenance that Rav is providing in this way? Meaning he's providing it in a way of a livelihood as opposed to a, as opposed to a charity. And the idea is that then it can function as a dowry and they can marry, right? As opposed to, you know, perhaps it would be different as this, you know, if they were coming from their father's houses, but they're not. So then what does this mean? Aliyah. And so the Gemara says, it's to keep with the status, the ulia is the status of the father, meaning Rav is going to help these orphan girls keep up their appearances. I don't mean their appearances physically, I mean status-wise in terms of what they need to be doing. Because, and this lines up with the opinion of Shmuel, and Shmuel we, knew, we know is a big expert when it comes to monetary matters. Shmuel says that we're talking about the daughter's livelihood, which again, for people, young women getting married, livelihood might just as well be a dowry, right? And then the court is going to come and assess how much are they supposed to get, you know, from the, the from their father's estate, meaning, remember, they're, they're orphan girls, right? The father has died, there is nobody to provide for them, the estate is supposed to do it. How are you going to assess that? You assess it according to the status of the father, meaning it's not just the value, let's say, of the land or something like that. It's also what was his um, net net wealth type of thing. Um, and that's exactly the question. The Gemara then goes on to have a debate. Maybe we're talking about it was actual sustenance, right, as opposed to um, the equivalent of what their father would have had to provide. Um, I think it's interesting that we see this function of tzedakah here, right? This charity where Rav is providing for these girls who have no one else. And we've talked elsewhere kind of at length about how the ketubah is going to prepare, how it's going to provide for the, for the women. And in this case, right, we can all imagine these terrible situations, you know, who provides for the people who don't have someone to provide for them. So Rav was able to step in. And isn't that great? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's very nice what Rav does. I just want to go back to the thing about Abaye with like the different ages with the scorpion. And he mentions one also with a one-year-old. Um, this reminded me a lot about, you know, what we say about not giving um, uh, one-year-olds. Oh, right. The one-year-old who's stung by a hornet, um, you know, has to be at least a year old. So this reminded me of like today, we don't give honey to infants under a year of age because of the risk of botulism. So it's interesting to see sort of the same notion that younger bodies may not be able to handle things that adult bodies can handle. 
Right. But and they seem to have been aware of that. Right. That they're yeah, that they're totally aware of that. And that we necessarily talk about, but that concept isn't foreign to them. That's our daft discussion for the day. Thank you for joining us. Rank us, review, review us where you get your podcast. Come talk to us on our Facebook page and tell us what you think of this stuff. Thank you to Rebenit Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. And until tomorrow, go and learn. 